Griots. Thought leaders, storytellers and griots sharing personal highlights on Stories of the Week. This is where we're trawling to see what the stories are that people are covering and they are writing articles or opinion pieces in various different websites. It could be The Conversation, it could be The Daily Maverick, it could be, in this case, the fabulous New Frame, which is just such a great website and has incredibly diverse and different news stories. And sometimes they're not hard news, but they come in with a completely different angle and approach. And today we're going to an article by Aragorn Eloff, who is a columnist. And the question that Aragorn was asking is, can we go from cancel culture to dreaming together? Aragorn, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me on. Is that your real first name? <laughs> that is my real name. My parents are Tolkien fans, and they were reading Lord of the Rings when my mom was pregnant with me. So, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You must absolutely love that. I mean, do you almost feel like you need to be flying off and, and, and saving things and things like that? I guess there's a lot of pressure attached to having a name like that. Yeah. <laughs> Aragorn, you wrote a great article, Can We Go From Cancel Culture to Dreaming Together? And it might be worth, before um, we even uh, go into the article itself, is to try and understand what cancel culture is, where does the term come from, and what is the impact of it in so many different cases? Right. So it's really interesting. So when you see people using the term, typically it's people from kind of reactionary or right-wing spaces trying to describe what they view as a very hostile, totalitarian form of left-wing politics that attempts to remove people from public space. This typically happens online. It typically involves crowds of people trying to shut someone down or prevent them from speaking publicly um, or antagonizing them on social media platforms like Twitter. Um, a really good case of this would be, um, for instance, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books. Um, she's expressed some quite awful transphobic views in recent years. And so you've had a sort of massive groundswell of people attempting to, um, in scare quotes, cancel J.K. Rowling. Um, and that's done this through um, harassing people who've attempted to give her platforms to speak, to encouraging people not to buy her books, um, to being hostile to people who discuss her in favorable terms on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like this. Um, of course, this is wildly unsuccessful. J.K. Rowling is a billionaire and remains a billionaire and remains an incredibly popular author. Um, but it's this kind of underlying form of trying to remove people from public space entirely, trying to delete them as though they're a kind of online social media profile or something that I think is kind of, that kind of typifies what we think of as cancel culture. It obviously has strong continuities with older forms of oppositional politics, like, like boycotting and just deplatforming people, things that, you know, are perennial in political contestation. But it's something that, that particularly happens online. And it's particularly prevalent over the last decade or so. I mean, it's an interesting debate because it is a form of censorship and it's often a form of censorship against people who may have said something which is not considered um, morally, ethically, politically correct. And yet in the very nature of censoring them, one is stopping the broader debate which may come out of it. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's very interesting because um, that leads into sort of debates around free speech. Yeah. And 
I think we have to be very careful there because I don't believe free speech should be absolute. Um, for instance, if someone is standing up and rallying people in the streets to assault people of color or assault LGBTI communities, they might argue that they're exercising their right to free speech, but they're mobilizing hatred and violence towards people. Yeah. So I think we always need to see free speech in context. It's part of physical action in the world. You know, I don't believe there's some sort of strange mind duality, mind-body duality where free speech doesn't have a link to action. I think we need to be very careful to see its links to action and see when it has the propensity towards enacting violence in the world. Yeah. Um, that said, obviously, it can be the idea of free speech can be weaponized in various directions. So you can have um, Holocaust denialists saying that it's their right to free speech to appear at a university conference and spout falsehoods. Yeah. On the other hand, you can see people weaponizing views against free speech, say, well, anything I don't disagree with must be shut down because yeah. it's creating a certain kind of violence in the world. So it tends towards both extremes. So I think, Aragorn, what was interesting about your column was that you did speak to this idea of is there a way to go beyond this to one where we may not always agree, but we do come together to discuss and, as, as you call it, to dreaming together. Tell us a little bit about that. Right, right. Well, I think what's been interesting is in recent years, there's been a lot of reflection on the left, which is the political space I come out of. Um, I come yeah. out of sort of the anarchist political philosophy um, about how these sort of more toxic forms of cancel culture and everything else um, have ended up becoming a form of horizontal hostility. You know, so people have tried to cancel and take down all these big figures like J.K. Rowling, and it's spectacularly unsuccessful because these people have just so much economic, political, social, and cultural yeah. capital that, you know, a bunch of people being angry with them on Twitter isn't going to make much difference. So what happens then is people feel a loss of agency, so they turn against each other. So you get these sort of very toxic forms of divisiveness and moral puritanism emerging within progressive communities, right? So, you know, the, the left sort of starts consuming itself and dividing itself up based on these sort of minor transgressions. And there's been a lot of dialogue around this yeah. in recent years. Um, people like Adrian Marie Brown, who's a sort of really amazing U.S. activist. She wrote a book called We Will Not Cancel Us recently, where she says, look, we need to look past this idea and realize that the idea of cancel culture has its roots in prison culture and in punitive culture. You know, it's based on the logic of incarceration and it, it's really, really unhealthy. It, it, it perpetuates sort of forms of politics that we're against in other parts of our political lives. Yeah. And she speaks a lot about moving instead to what she calls transformative justice, yes. you know, which is based on restorative approaches to mediating conflict and trying to understand the complexities underlying our political and social disagreements and ethical disagreements. Um, so I think moving in that direction is crucial. It obviously requires a lot of nuance, and that's precisely where we run up against the fundamental problem with digital media, which is one of the most sort of dominant spaces in which people live their political and social lives lately, hmm. um, which is that it's not a platform that appreciates nuance. You know, it's a very short text and meme-driven context in which nuance is, doesn't have sort of many possibilities to manifest. Yeah. So we need to find ways of creating nuance within a context where, you know, which is pretty much constructed against the idea of nuance. 
You know, um, the, the idea of transformative justice as a term and, and as an idea is something that is growing quite rapidly in South Africa and has been in the last while. And I wonder if, um, because not everybody may understand exactly what it means, maybe you could really just tease that out for us to understand what is transformative justice and how do we use it as opposed to something like cancel culture, which just negates the conversation altogether. But how do we use transformative justice to really make a difference? So perhaps to explain the terminology and how it can be used. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think in South Africa we have a really excellent example of this, which probably everyone knows, which is the TRC, right? The Truth yeah. and Reconciliation Commission, which was based on the idea of transformative justice, of not just punishing people for the, you know, the vile transgressions of apartheid, but saying, okay, how do we overcome this in a way that doesn't allow all the residual violence of apartheid to continue manifesting in contemporary society? Of, of course, it was wildly unsuccessful in many ways. Yeah. A lot of the violence from the apartheid era does continue to manifest in contemporary society. But the underlying ideal that we should seek to heal from the wounds of the past, not, not dismiss them, not dismiss the injustices of the past, but seek to heal from the wounds by looking at how it's sort of psychologically traumatized us and structurally transformed society is it, crucial. Um, so, I mean, transformative justice at the end of the day is based on what I would call describing the problem correctly. Instead of assuming that we know what the problems are and that those are the things that are explicit in our discourse, trying to look beneath those a little bit and say, okay, well, what's really going on here? How do people really feel in these situations of conflict? What are the psychological and structural factors really influencing how they choose to perceive others in the world and perceive difference in the world? So for me, transformative justice is based on posing different, deeper questions hmm. about how we currently relate to each other, how we perceive each other, and how we could instead more constructively and in more healthy ways relate to each other. You know, Aragorn, I think you've kind of nailed it. I'm thinking of something that I, that I studied when... We were looking at um, social entrepreneurship and the thing that, that we were told, and I always thought this was so interesting in the broader sense of the, my environment, my work environment, was are you asking the right question um, as opposed to saying, okay, the problem is this, now how do we solve the problem? But instead of assuming that you know what the problem is, it might be better to go back to the problem and saying, is this the right question to answer the problem? And is this the problem? Um, and, and maybe we... We, we're not that rigorous always in, I mean, certainly I, I know that I, I stand accused of that, I'm sure, um, in, in really trying to tease out the question as opposed to saying, I've got to get to the answer. Right, right. Yes, I mean, a very good example of this would be, you know, when we're discussing trans-inclusiveness yeah. in society, you know, it's a very easy question to say, should trans women be allowed to use women's bathrooms, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, I would say yes. Um, but that's not the real question. The real question we should be, or one of the real questions we should be asking, is why have we structured society around gender in these ways? Yeah. Um, and what weighs into that? And what are, the, what are the consequences of constructing these sort of very dominant gender binaries in society? What are the consequences for women? What are the consequences for men? What are the consequences for people who don't identify with the gender binary at all? Yeah. And why does it have, have such social gravity and does it need to? Are there other ways of arranging society that don't center gender in such, you know, in such ugly ways? So, Aragorn, in closing, I suppose one could ask, yes, 
I hear all of this, but I could be saying, or someone could be listening and saying, oh, oh, please, how do I engage with this? How would you simplify it down so that every single one of us can think, okay, I'm going to think about what I've just heard differently. Right. So, I mean, one of the things I say in my article, um, which is something that I think we're all guilty of to some extent, because we all live quite a bit of our lives on the internet nowadays, you know, whether we like to or not, it's social media and digital media more broadly are central parts of our lives. We all have our cell phones next to us most of our waking hours. And, um, And this is historically unprecedented, right? It's not something that previous generations had as part of their waking reality. So we need to become more aware of the effects that digital media is having on our lives. And yeah. we need to yes. learn to cultivate forms of practice that rely less centrally on social media and on interacting with each other through digital platforms. I think, the, I think stepping back, having more real-world encounters with people, which allows for a lot more nuance, is central. And also in the longer term, we need to think of how we can transform digital media and social media platforms so that they allow for more nuance and they allow for more time, more breathing room, more space to be wrong. Yeah, more space to be wrong. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. In fact, it's better to be wrong and agree with and and acknowledge it than to just assume that you're always right, I suppose, as well. Aragon, thank you so much for joining us. Um, A great uh, article on newframe.com. Give Newframe a bit of a punt because we do think they are doing very interesting work and very diverse stories coming out of their stories that are impacting us in so many different sectors and spaces. Well, I'm, I'm heavily biased. I think New Frame is the best, <laughs> the best progressive publication in the country, obviously. Um, but I, I'm really proud to work about, alongside so many amazing journalists, photojournalists, editors, everyone else. Um, I think we, in yeah, we in a sort of almost unprecedented position of being able to write stories from a really sort of grassroots, people-led, people-led um, perspective on topical sort of cultural, social, and political issues. Um, I really think we have some of the best writing in the country. And obviously, I encourage everyone to read us. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the story that's coming out about the national lotteries is one that was originally started and, and really being researched through Newframe. Um, to, to some extent, yes. I mean, I think we... Um, so what's very interesting is the way we approach things is we're not a breaking news website. We don't try to be the first with stories, um, but we try to do them right. We try to take that breathing room I spoke about earlier to step back and really reflect and offer more reflective insights on what's happening in the world than hot takes. You know, I think that's, that's where our strength really lies. Okay, fantastic. Aragorn Ilof, um, talking about an article he wrote called Going from Cancel Culture to Dreaming Together.